What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. Today, we've got a serial killing granny for you. A woman by the name of Velma Barfield. Velma decided to buy a bottle of arsenic-based rat poison. It's been called the king of poisons. This made her the first woman executed in the United States after it was reinstated after a four-year suspension. She had attended every one of her victims' funerals. Velma later admitted that when she watched her victims die, she felt nothing. If there's ever been a case deserving imposition of the ultimate penalty, this is it. Today, if it were possible, I wish that I could take every bit of hurt on myself. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. I'm your host, Josh, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Austin. Hey, man, what's up? What's up, man? And our producer, Daniel. How's it going, everybody? Today, we've got a serial-killing granny for you. A woman by the name of Velma Barfield. Now, Velma draws a lot of similarities to some other evil women we've covered on the show, including... Shelly Notek. Yep. And Diane Stoudy. Yeah, they're very similar. A lot of similar characteristics as well as the method in which they murdered people are very similar. We're talking about rat poisoning today. Using rat poison. Yeah. Pretty gross stuff. Poisoning, in my opinion, is one of the most brutal ways that you could possibly kill somebody. Yeah. It's it's very impersonal. But the things that it does to your body is horrific. It's very cowardly, too. To it's like a... Someone. Yeah, and it's it's this overtime death yeah. that happens. And the the symptoms that these poisons cause your body is just... I can't even imagine what that must be like. Yeah, and, and you can survive, which is the worst part. Depending on the dosage, we'll see some of these victims. Like, they'll go to the hospital and be totally destroyed, but then they'll heal... Only to, you know, have it happen again over time because she's just continuously poisoning them. It's just a complete agony for days, weeks. And to not even know why why this is happening to you, right? Yeah. That is just, it's terrifying to think about. So Velma Barfield, she is somebody who was severely addicted to drugs and, you know, she was also this church-going Christian woman all the way up until her death. On, know, on paper, with, yeah. With quotes around that. What's interesting to me is that back in the 70s and 80s, Velma had a lot of support coming from the evangelical Christian community. And, you know, there's this whole sort of controversy around can somebody who has murdered multiple people and she's suspected of murdering five to seven different individuals over the period of her life and can somebody who's done this you know sort of wipe their slate clean and you know i mean i i like the positivity in thinking that someone can and i know that's a big part of 
a lot of faith-based systems is forgiveness. Right. People can change. People can find God, et cetera. We'll see. I mean, I'm not 100% convinced that Velma was just this like sweet God-fearing woman at the end of it because I think she's a manipulator. So it's hard for me to say. And I think at the end of the day, I really can't say. I can't judge her character. I don't know. You know, as far as the afterlife is concerned, where this woman's going, but uh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel it's very convenient when when killers, towards the end of their life, find God, and all of a sudden they're kind of this reborn person, and you know, they're some of them do show remorse for what they've done, and I think in that particular situation that you can judge them a little differently but Velma she just never seemed to really care in my opinion you know it seems like she was very disconnected from everything that she had done and never really understood the extent of the damage that she had caused uh, throughout her life so this this case is is very very interesting and very controversial for a lot of people. She even wrote a book that was published yeah. after she died. And even in that book, I don't know from what I read from it, it's she never really gives off this. It's a very open and honest storytelling of her life, but it almost feels like there's something just wrong with her. And it's it's hard to come to terms with this woman because she's just so direct about like not feeling anything when her victims were dying and stuff like that that just it it doesn't sit well with me and it feels like there's something fundamentally wrong with her so it's hard to it's hard to judge someone who's just not you know possible i don't want to diagnose anyone with anything but like you're not like the rest of us here i can tell so i don't know and i think as you'll see as we go through her life that there are events in her life that may have contributed to a mental health issues that True. could have potentially spiraled out of control. And obviously when you infuse drugs and alcohol and things like that, it's going to make all of that even worse. So True. this one, uh, yeah, this one's definitely brutal. And, uh, she was actually the first woman to be, uh, executed by lethal injection. Yep. Uh, which is pretty wild. You don't hear, I don't know, I feel like you don't hear about women being executed, period. No, it's pretty rare. I don't have the stats on it, but I do know it's really rare, rare for women to be on death row. She was also the first woman, I think, to be executed after it was reinstated uh, federally, which is wild to think about. So let's go ahead and dive into the story of Velma Barfield. So Velma was born Margie Velma Bullard, And she was born during the worst of the Great Depression on October 29th, 1932 in Eastover, North Carolina. She was the second of nine children, and her parents' names were Murphy and Lillian Bullard. Her mother went by Lily. Her father was a cotton farmer, and many of us know what the Great Depression was about. And the collapse of cotton prices during this time sent the family into financial turmoil. He could barely afford to feed and clothe his large family. They lived in harsh, cramped conditions in a small wooden house, and they had no electricity or running water. One of Velma's siblings died in infancy, and another was disfigured from polio. Meanwhile, Murphy was also trying to support his aging parents, who no longer worked. And by 1935, he quit the farming industry and worked for a logging company, and then later on he worked at a textile mill. 
in Fayetteville. Murphy was a hard worker, but when they had little money, he often wasted it, as he liked to impress people, so he'd buy nice things that they didn't need. Velma was terrified of her father while growing up. He had a violent temper, and he was set off by the smallest of things. He'd also get extremely jealous. During his outbursts, he would physically abuse his children and would also smash furniture. According to some sources, Lily, their mother, would never intervene or defend her children. Other sources say she did her best to protect her children, and she would even take the blame for things so Murphy wouldn't harm the kids. Velma would often forgive her father because she thought Murphy's outbursts were typical for a man, but she accused her mother of being too passive. Velma ended up resenting Lily because of this, and when she was 12 years old, she asked her mother why she put up with him. Lily said that she had nowhere else to go, but Velma never thought that excuse was good enough. Meanwhile, she did well in school. She enjoyed classes because it got her out of the house, but she never really did well with the other students. She failed in group exercises and didn't have many friends. She'd also have outbursts in class that mimicked her father's short temper at home. Unlike the other kids, Velma would often wear secondhand or handmade clothing to school, which made her stand out to the other kids. Since she knew her family was poor, she would often sneak out of school and steal money from her elderly neighbor. When her father found out what she was doing, he beat her. Even though the Great Depression had been over for years, her family was still relatively poor since her father was bad with money. So instead of stealing from neighbors, Velma started stealing coins from her father's pants pockets at home. She would then use that money to buy the other kids candy and bribe them into having a friendship with her. According to Velma, her father had sexually abused her when she was 13 years old. This was denied by her brothers, but supposedly one of her sisters later supported the accusation. In her teenage years, she met her future boyfriend, a boy named Thomas Burke. Her father would only let Velma date when she was 16 years old, so the two anxiously awaited for Velma's 16th birthday. When she later began dating Thomas, her father did not approve of the relationship. They'd go out on dates, but after a while, Velma felt guilty being away from home for so long. She knew that when she was out on dates, the rest of her siblings were subjected to her father's wrath. One evening, Thomas and Velma were driving home from the movies. Suddenly, 18-year-old Thomas said that he wanted to get married out of the blue. Velma immediately panicked. She knew that getting engaged to Thomas would throw Murphy into a fit of rage, but on the other hand, she saw that marrying Thomas was just an easy way to get out of the house, away from her parents, so a few days later, she agreed to marry Thomas. Meanwhile, her father was switching jobs and was moving the family to Wade, which was a few towns over. So instead of a traditional marriage, Thomas and Velma eloped. On the evening of December 1st, 1949, 17-year-old Velma was picked up by her friend, Alvy Pender. She told her parents it was just going to be a regular night out with friends, nothing to worry about, but then they picked up Thomas and drove over to Dillon, South Carolina. Velma and Thomas then got married in a courthouse, and Alvy acted as a witness. When Velma got home later that night, she kept her marriage a secret from the family. Thomas did the same. This was an agreement that they had. They planned on telling Velma's parents right before they moved, so it would kind of soften the blow. At first, they both agreed on the plan, but for some reason, Thomas then urged her to tell everyone the next day. So Velma ended up telling her mother, Lily. And then she asked if she could just, you know, softly relay the info to her father, Murphy, because she was a bit scared at, at an outburst, right? But Lily ended up declining. She said, look, this is your problem, not hers. You have to tell your father. So the next day, 
Velma ended up breaking the news to Murphy. And he was so upset he began throwing things as he usually did when he threw a temper tantrum. And he demanded they get the marriage annulled immediately. Then he began crying, which she said she had never seen him do before. And from then on, her relationship with her father was just never the same. According to Velma, Murphy was never mean to her ever again, but Velma carried this guilt with her for a long time. We can kind of already see some problematic family dynamics, right? I mean, not just the outbursts and stuff, but Velma blaming her mother for not standing up to Murphy uh, sounds like maybe some internalized misogyny where it's like, no, men are just going to be men. It's on the woman to defend herself and her children. So that's strange. And then the sudden switch of behavior for Murphy. Right, yeah, crying for the first time. Like she gets this reaction from him she likely wasn't suspecting. And that's that's very interesting to me because it makes me, I mean, it, it to me it validates her recollection of, you know, her childhood and, you know, the relationship that she had with her father that it was almost like Murphy realized that he was losing his daughter. Right. Because now she was getting married and he probably also knew that she was going to be moving, moving out of the house. And, you know, it seems like he was a very possessive uh, dad. For sure. So a few days later, Velma moves out of her parents' home and Thomas and her ended up living with his, his parents for a little while. Velma said the first few years of their marriage were the happiest years of her life. They both dropped out of school and Thomas got a job at a nearby cotton mill and later drove a delivery truck. Velma found work in a local pharmacy and the couple spent most of 1950 and 1951 living with Thomas's parents. After a while, Thomas ended up hating his job, so he quit and moved in with Velma's oldest brother, Olive. Thomas then found work at a cola bottling company. He made enough that they could get a place of their own a few months later. Velma soon became pregnant and gave birth to their first son, Ronald, or Ronnie Burke, on December 15, 1951. And just two years later, they had another child on September 3, 1953, and that's when Velma gave birth to her daughter named Kim. Velma loved her children, and her children loved her. She was overprotective of them when she likely learned this behavior from her father, and she later said that whenever she was separated from her children, for whatever reason it was, she felt physically ill. Have you ever felt that with Holly? Any? I do understand that, yeah. I mean, we haven't been away from her uh, for that long, but there was a, we took a little trip. It was only for a few days. And even like when we took our company, our company camping trip, I was—I right. think that was the first time we were actually away from her overnight uh, for like what two nights or something. And, yeah. And I don't think—I don't know if I would say I was like physically ill, but mentally, just like it felt weird to not know where she was at or what she was doing. Yeah. The the alarm bells were kind of—you're getting a little worried. Yeah. It's like yeah. you had spent every day with her basically up until then. Yeah, and I think. It gets easier as they get older. I think when they're really young, you you especially kind of worry, and there's definitely kind of that pain there. But hopefully, it gets a little easier. But I've heard it doesn't right, yeah. <laughs> ever get easier. Yeah. And even when your kids grow up and move out of the house, you're still yeah, or even like going to school, right? So like eventually totally. be leaving the I'm house not looking to go forward to, to that. Yeah, definitely not looking forward to that. But Ronnie eventually started the first grade. Around the same time, Velma got a job at a textile mill working the overnight shift. They worked out their schedules so someone could always be home with the children. 
1962, Velma began having health problems. She was diagnosed with fibroid tumors in her uterus, which caused intense pain and bleeding. Doctors advised that Velma needed a hysterectomy. After the operation, Velma's brother John said she was never the same. And this type of surgery back in like the 50s was probably much different than yeah. it was. That's a pretty, it's still a serious operation, but it's fairly routine. Right. Like it's not like, you know, they've done, you know, they've been able to perfect it over the years. Obviously, there's still complications that can come from it, but I can only imagine what this, this must have been like. Yeah. Because Velma later wrote, quote, I didn't know how to handle my nerves. From my early childhood, when anything upset me, it made me nervous and afraid. All that got worse after my hysterectomy. Hysterectomies can drastically alter hormones, and at the time, hormone treatment wasn't common. And therapy and counseling also weren't common options, so with no social, mental, or emotional outlets, Velma began to bottle up her feelings, and she would have outbursts just like her father. She also developed back pain from the operation, and obviously this change in her mood affected her family as well as her marriage. And on top of this, by 1965, Thomas's father had passed away, and Thomas had also gotten into a car accident. He suffered moderate injuries, but he began using alcohol as a painkiller. He began drinking more than usual, and he also joined a civic organization where all the members were also big drinkers. Both Velma's and Thomas's personalities changed over the years, and their problems caused endless arguments. Velma's temper mixed with Thomas's drinking made life at home unbearable. By the mid-1960s, they had also fallen on hard times financially. Velma's first crime was writing a bad check, which was later discovered, and she was ordered to pay the money back. Meanwhile, Thomas was arrested for drunk driving, and he ended up losing his driver's license, which this also cost him his job driving delivery trucks for the cola bottling company. He then began drinking even more than usual, and he was unemployed for the next several months, and obviously this was putting a lot of strain on the family. Velma's back pain also got worse, so a doctor prescribed her painkillers, and she soon developed a drug addiction. And this is really the moment where, from here on out, Velma's entire life just begins spiraling into essentially just a drug addiction for almost the entire rest of her life. By now, their children were both teenagers, and Velma and Thomas were both abusing drugs and alcohol at home, so you can imagine that home life is destructive. The relationship only got more toxic as time went on. Velma would lose her temper at the slightest thing that Thomas did, kind of just like her father. The kids would often try to de-escalate the fighting, but they later claimed it was almost impossible to get their mother to stop screaming. So by the end of the 1960s, Velma tried to get Thomas into a rehab program for his drinking, but she ignored her own addiction, which is kind of hypocritical, right? She had developed anxiety and began losing a concerning amount of weight, and one morning in 1968, she actually collapsed in the kitchen while making breakfast. Thomas was too drunk to help that early in the morning, so their son Ronnie had to call his grandfather Murphy to come over for help. Murphy ended up driving Velma to the hospital. After being admitted, the doctors told her she had experienced a nervous breakdown. She was discharged a week later and given a prescription for Librium, and this is a psychotropic drug used to treat anxiety disorders. It's also habit forming, which is a problem. The doctors also suggested mental health treatment and professional help with her marriage, but she ignored both of those suggestions. 
Back at home, she kept abusing her pain medication and now along with the Librium. She began taking far higher doses than what she was prescribed and she also sought out multiple doctors at once to get as many prescriptions as she could. Meanwhile, her marriage continued to fail and by the end of 1968, Velma and Thomas just barely spoke with each other. Thomas would always, he would try to get sober, but he would often relapse a few months later, and this obviously made it hard to just hold down a job. His behavior had also become very strange the more he drank. Sometimes, this was reported by the family, sometimes he would head to the garage, get inside the family car, and just rev the engine until the gas tank was empty. And if another family member tried to come in and stop him, he would become physically and verbally abusive until they just left him alone. And he would usually pass out after these drunken episodes. I'm curious if he did this with like the garage door shut. Like to and if this end is almost, his life. Yeah, this was like suicide attempt. Yeah, it does, uh, does seem that way. Because like, that's such a strange thing to do. Right. Unless you're trying to like create a lot of carbon monoxide, you know. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good theory. This episode is brought to you by our good friends over at HelloFresh. As you can probably tell by looking at Austin and I, we love to eat. We can never fill our stomachs, it feels like. I am always hungry. I am too. Doesn't matter what time of day it is. If someone's like, here's some food, I'm going to eat it. Doesn't matter. Dude, me too. I, I go to bed last night. It's like 1130 and I'm like, oh, I'm hungry. Get those cravings. Yeah, I'm just always hungry. But the other thing that I am always running out of is time. To save time and money, I've been a HelloFresh member for over a year now. A subscription that I pay for on my own. I absolutely love it. We eat HelloFresh in my home like four nights a week. Last night I made some uh, mushroom smash burgers, actually. That sounds good. They were fire, dude. So even if you're somebody who's like, oh, I can't cook. I've never been able to cook a day in my life. This is a great place to start learning. If you can read, you can cook. And this time of year, everyone's looking to revamp their eating habits and get back on track. Look to HelloFresh's wholesome health forward options, like over 30 calorie smart and protein smart recipes each week. Plus, they say breakfast is the most important meal of the day and HelloFresh agrees. In fact, they're giving all subscribers free breakfast for life. That means you'll enjoy a totally free breakfast item with every single HelloFresh delivery. I love that they've expanded to all meals of the day. So you can have HelloFresh breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, late night dessert, whatever you want. I've always thought of it as a dinner thing, but yeah. you know what? I Maybe I need to think about this a little differently here. You do. You need to replace whatever you're doing for breakfast and lunch and get HelloFresh because it is absolutely delicious and you will save so much money. I mean, delivery fees these days, dude, out of control. So ridiculous. So let HelloFresh save you time and money this year. We got a special offer for you. Go to HelloFresh.com slash lights out free. And if you use code lights out free, you'll get free breakfast for life. That means one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash lights out free with code lights out free. So by March of 1969, Velma had had enough, which is, I don't know still hypocritical that she's like i look at my drunk husband meanwhile she's popping a bunch of pills and these teenage children are just caught in the middle of all this so velma takes the high road she packs a suitcase for her and her daughter kim while thomas was passed out drunk one day 
She planned on staying with her parents for a while indefinitely. Ronnie, who was 17, he probably had to mature pretty quickly in this household. He ended up staying behind with his father because he thought someone needed to take care of him. Which, good God. Imagine being 17 and being like, my parents are completely destructive. I need to watch over my dad because he's a drunk. I, I can't imagine this. But, so Ronnie blames the family's toxicity kind of on his father's drinking. His father then blames his mother's pill addiction. Nobody wants to take responsibility here, but after a long discussion that night with Ronnie, Thomas finally agreed to try to get sober again. And this, you know, this was several times over. Velma and Kim ended up returning to the home a few days later, but like always, Thomas fell off the wagon after only a week of being sober, and things just returned to exactly how they used to be. By April, Ronnie and Kim decided to get out of the house for a while to be away from their parents, which was probably a good move. So they went to stay with their grandparents. On the morning of April 21st, 1969, Thomas stumbled home from work, and he was obviously drunk again, and he passed out in bed. Velma left to go shopping with her mother and make a trip to the laundromat. When she returned home later that day, smoke filled the house. The bedroom carpet and the inside walls were black with smoke damage, and Thomas was lying dead in the bedroom. Apparently what had happened is Thomas had passed out with a lit cigarette between his fingers and it lit their bedroom carpet on fire. At some point, Thomas woke up and tried to put the flames out, but he passed out from smoke inhalation and died soon after. The family dog named Termite and their cat Sadie also died. Do you think there's any foul play here? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that story, I can just see it playing out exactly that way. Yeah. My thing is, though, I do know, especially with alcoholics, I don't know why I know this, but especially with drunks, when they would smoke cigarettes in bed and, you know, there's always the threat of passing out when you're drunk. So they would actually hold the cigarette butt in between their pinky and ring finger. Because supposedly when you pass out, fall asleep, you won't drop the cigarette butt. Oh, and uh, your hands oh. will like naturally hold it. So that's why I'm like, he probably, he had probably passed out a million times with a lit cigarette. But so that's, I think there might be, and obviously she's conveniently out of the house when this happens too. So I don't know, something to think about, maybe a little bit suspicious here. Or what if you, you know, you could still be holding a cigarette, but what if you like roll out of bed or something, you know, or true, you know, you're so drunk, you start throwing up or something like that. And you like lean over and you right. just kind of roll out onto the floor and your your lit cigarette. Yeah. God, I mean, that'd be a hot cigarette to light the carpet on right. fire, right? And supposedly, so newer cigarettes, they automatically go out, um, but old cigarettes, they would just keep burning. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know why I know someone. Yeah, I don't you know, know a lot not about even a, smoking back in the I'm day. not even a smoker. I don't know why I know that. So even though Thomas and his drinking problem was very problematic for the family, Velma and her children still grieved over his death. I mean, ultimately, they still lost a loved one. His life insurance policy only barely covered the funeral costs, and now Velma had to work as a machine operator in a cotton mill and a clerk at Belk's department store to support her family. So now working multiple jobs. She'd work here for the next several years, and she had become friends with a woman named Pauline Barfield, who worked next door to the department store. They had known each other for years and soon became best friends. At some point, Pauline introduced Velma to her husband, Jennings. Jennings was disabled and suffered from emphysema and diabetes, 
He had retired from a career in the civil service because of his failing health, and not long after Velma's husband had died, Jennings' wife Pauline also died from an unexpected cerebral hemorrhage, which devastated both Velma and Jennings. They bonded over their grief, and soon enough, Velma and Jennings started a relationship of their own, and after just a few months, Jennings proposed. Velma later admitted that she wasn't in love with him, but still accepted the proposal. Which that's all very odd to me. Yeah. It's just, you know, what are the chances right. of this playing out the way that it did? Yeah. Unexpected and, cerebral hemorrhage, which I guess can happen, but. Yeah. It's. I, I think my biggest gripe with that is Velma later admitting she was never in love with him. That, I, that came from her book, and it's like. She saw money. Yeah. And I mean companionship, I guess, too. Yeah, but also no, I think you're right with the money because we know Jennings is he's disabled. He has a bunch of health problems. He's a bit older. So, yeah, she might have been looking at it like that. So that just tells you right there kind of this parasitic mind state that that Velma is. And she's constantly looking for the next person that she can manipulate in order to get what she wants or what she needs. Yep. Jennings didn't drink and she knew he wouldn't treat her poorly, and that was enough for her to apparently marry him. But again, she claimed that she never loved him. Despite all this, on August 23rd, 1970, they got married, and Velma later said, quote, I was as unhappy married as I had been alone. That is cold, right? Then why are you getting married then? Right. Jennings' health problems were worse than she had realized according to her, and he rarely listened to doctor's advice to get himself healthier. Velma was also his caretaker at home. Meanwhile, Velma began taking Valium every day along with her other medication. I can only imagine the mixture of all these medications and the side effects of that. I mean, Valium, I'm pretty sure you don't want to take with especially other benzos or other types of painkillers. So, I mean, you can only imagine the state of being yeah and i know you know back then it's all all the medical records were paper and they didn't always cross-reference everything so they're like they that's why when you go to the doctor they're like what other prescription medications are you on you have to fill that in well if she's not doing that because she's drug seeking then they're just like okay it's not that bad if she's just on this one medication right that's all they know or for all we know she's going to different pharmacies and yeah, pick you know, it wasn't like there's a database that the pharmacists were able to like check what other pharmacies she had been to. Right. So just like, oh, here you go. Just getting a bunch of doctors to write a bunch of prescriptions. The more Jennings resisted his treatment, the more she abused prescription drugs. She always found a way to blame his health problems for her drug abuse. Meanwhile, Ronnie graduated from high school that spring and he started to work at the cola company where his father used to work. And by that fall, he was enrolled at the University of South Carolina. Velma realized that with Ronnie out of the house, she had lost one of the people who had truly made her happy. To make it worse, Ronnie was drafted into the military a few months later during the Vietnam War. After this, Velma fell into another spiral of depression and destruction. She resented Jennings for his health problems and only saw him as a burden. And she soon wished he was dead. And instead of just doing the normal thing and divorcing him, Velma decided to buy a bottle of arsenic-based rat poison. By mid-March 1971, Jennings contacted a lawyer to seek out a divorce after only being married for six months. But by this time, it was already too late. On March 21st, Velma snuck the arsenic in one of Jennings' meals. 
with the amount of research I've done into poisonings and killing people, say you could write a book on it. Yeah. And I got to be on some list by now from just my Google search history (laughs) here, but I, I hope I can inform everyone a little bit on what really happens and why people use arsenic. It's actually, it's been called the king of poisons. Wow. And like many poisons, it's often extremely hard to detect because if you're not looking for it, you're really not going to know this is the cause. And because it's a lot of poisons, just all the damage is done internally. Yeah. Right. It's not mm-hmm. always all this external symptoms that right. you're seeing. Exactly. And all of the side effects are similar to just other things you right. see naturally, like, oh, he's just has this illness or this disease. So it's very easy to write it off. So in Velma's case, which we'll see, she knew how to choose most of her victims, so there was often no suspicion when they died. Arsenic is extremely toxic to humans. It's mostly odorless and tasteless, and Velma was essentially buying it for about $1 a bottle in the common form of rat poison. So she could just go to the local store, pick up some rat poison, drop it in people's food and drink. It's mostly odorless and tasteless. And that's how she did it. So here's the nitty gritty. Symptoms of rat poisoning can kick in within minutes, sometimes hours, depending on the dose. And they usually end about 12 hours after exposure if it's not already fatal. Sometimes symptoms can last for days, depending, especially if she's dosing them over multiple days. Right. So for trivalent arsenic, which is what Velma was most likely using, It has a corrosive effect. Sometimes oral sores could be visible inside the victim's mouth or throat. They would have suffered from GI bleeding and gastroenteritis, big word there, which causes nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Another side effect is dysphagia, which is where they have trouble swallowing, and a large dosage like the one Velma had given Jennings would cause extremely violent reactions inside the body. That is horrific. Yeah. There could be hours or sometimes days of extreme agony. Dehydration and hypotension could also develop, which includes chest pain, coughing, numbness, and tingling. The body will eventually go into shock and then cardiac arrest one to four days after ingestion, which then would result in death. I don't know if you've heard of this. I actually did know this. This is strange. One of the few ways that you can identify arsenic poisoning without an autopsy is they actually smell like garlic, like on their breath, urine, body tissue. But besides that, arsenic poisoning is very discreet and there's usually no suspicion unless if people somehow connect the dots here. Yeah. Well, how would you even know that it was arsenic even with smelling garlic? I mean, they could just eat a bunch of garlic bread or Right. Yeah. Some garlicky pasta. True. I mean, garlic's a very potent herb. So, yeah. So it's just like Jennings comes in who he has emphysema, diabetes. He's got all these health issues. He can't work. All of a sudden, his body starts to break down. Oh, whatever. He smells like garlic. Wouldn't think twice about it that this guy is suffering from some illness. Well, then look at his wife. His wife is a, you know, wholesome woman. Church going. Caretaking for him. You know, nobody would suspect that she'd be doing something that right. could possibly be causing this. And, you know, I think the knowledge around poisonings was just obviously far, far less than what we know today. But even today, it seems like it takes the authorities a while sometimes to, 
to figure it out or for an autopsy to be to be done before they actually know what's going on yeah like diane stoudy with mm-hmm. the antifreeze i mean it took several victims and it it ended up being the reverend that had to call into police to be like hey you need to start connecting the dots you yeah know, something's going on it's just that hard to detect yep jennings got to the point where he couldn't breathe and velma rushed him to cape fear valley hospital it's unknown if she felt guilty if she just panicked or if she was putting on an act but jennings made it to the hospital but unfortunately, he died the following morning from heart complications, and he was just 54 years old. No one was suspicious of poisoning because Jennings had suffered from failing health for years. So there was no investigation, which is exactly how Velma planned it. She knew no one would second-guess Jennings' death. Velma later admitted that when she watched her victims die, she felt nothing, which has a scary thought. Um. And it's scary to admit that, too. Yes. And I don't know if that's, you know, some positive self-reflection or if she's just like, yeah, I felt nothing. It's just a fact for her. Yeah. Velma was relieved that Jennings was gone, but now that she was alone, she fell into a depression and continued to abuse prescription medication. And as you can imagine, her financial problems also grew. Meanwhile, Ronnie tried to get a deferment for his military enlistment, and Kim was about to graduate high school. Velma then experienced an overdose, which she later admitted was a, quote, half-hearted suicide attempt. After this, she struggled to show up for work, and after seven years of working at the department store, she was fired in December of 1971. Now she was living exclusively off of Jennings' life insurance money. When she ran out of money, she moved back in with her parents, Lillian Murphy, in 1972. She noticed her father's health was now failing, and he suffered from respiratory problems. He'd later be diagnosed with lung cancer, and by the time they discovered it, it was already too late. As he went into hospice, Velma found another job in Rayford to help her mother with the bills. Murphy died later that May, and again, Velma's addiction worsened. By January 1973, she overdosed again. She also began stealing any pills she could find in her friends' or neighbors' houses. She could no longer function without medication. And Velma's relationship with her mother, Lily, worsened. She resented her for a few different reasons, the first being that Lily expected Velma to take care of her and do household chores whenever she demanded. The second was because any time Lily mentioned the old days in Velma's childhood, she would say how great they were, and she wouldn't bother mentioning the years of abuse that she went through from her father Murphy. Meanwhile, her daughter Kim was now engaged to be married, leaving Velma and her mother all alone. Velma couldn't afford a wedding for her daughter and she needed more pills, so she took out several loans worth $2,000 against her mother's house and car behind her back. She would then use most of this money for prescriptions. In December 1974, the bank began sending Lily notices of payment, but she was confused and thought they were old notices, so she just threw them away. Eventually, Velma knew her mother was going to find out about her basically stealing money, so this is how she justified poisoning her mother. One day in mid-December of that year, Velma picked up her mother's prescription bottles. She also picked up another bottle of arsenic. She convinced herself she was going to make her mother ill. Velma then poisoned her mother's food, and it made her sick for a few days. But on December 30th, 1974, she poisoned her mother again, with more arsenic this time. Soon after, Lily began complaining of intense stomach pain and began vomiting. Velma called her mother's doctor to pretend she was concerned. From her symptoms, the doctor thought that Lily might have just had the stomach flu, so he just called in a prescription saying that a visit wasn't even necessary. 
Velma then called her brother Olive and convinced him that their mother was sick, but she didn't know why. So they called her an ambulance and got her to the hospital. Even when they got there, the other doctors told Velma and Olive that they had seen a lot of stomach flu cases recently, and they thought that's what Lily was suffering from. She had diarrhea, vomiting, and nausea, just like the others. But a few hours later, Lily died of heart complications, and Velma was later seen weeping at the funeral, which is just... Come on. Feels like an act to me. Yeah. Just to sell the story, you know? Yeah. She knows damn well how her mother died. Yeah, it's just a form of uh, writing that narrative and manipulating people. So after Lily's death, Velma moved in with her daughter Kim and her new husband. Velma's drug abuse was so bad by now that it caused, you know, endless problems in this household. So Kim and Ronnie began flushing their mother's pills down the toilet when they discovered them. According to Kim, she hid pill bottles in the washer, in rolls of toilet paper, in her bra, out in the yard. Once she even hid some in her hair rollers. Velma just always knew how to get more pills and find new hiding spots. And Kim later admitted that she had seen her mother passed out hundreds of times while on pills. One day, Velma returned to her mother's house to clear out some things. She discovered her late husband's old checkbook and she used it to write bad checks to the pharmacy to get more pills, but this quickly caught up to her. Two days later, the sheriff's deputies showed up looking for Velma. Authorities told her that if she just repaid the money, there wouldn't be any issues, but obviously she didn't have the money, so that day, Velma ended up overdosing again, trying to end her life, but she woke up in the hospital, and she had actually broken her collarbone from the fall as she had passed out. And as she was recovering in the hospital, the deputy sheriff returned with an arrest warrant. She later pled guilty to several counts of writing bad checks. She was sentenced to six months at North Carolina's Correctional Center for Women in Raleigh. She only served less than four months before being released for good behavior. And doesn't surprise me at all, Velma just sells the good Christian woman narrative and off you go. Right when she got out, she moved back in with Kim and her husband, but she ended up stealing a check from her son-in-law and used it to fill a prescription at the pharmacy. So clearly she learned nothing from this. She then found out her daughter was pregnant. With a baby on the way, Kim and her husband decided to gently kick Velma out of the house. So to find a new place to stay, Velma made arrangements to offer in-home care to the elderly in exchange for room and board. She's so crafty. Yep. She's like, oh. I don't have any money, so I'll have no way to live. But you know what? I'll, I'm pretty good at this caretaking thing. So I'm going to go and sell myself doing yeah. that. And like as a, I don't know, middle-aged woman, church-going woman, just want to help the elderly. She's got right? the look for sure. Yeah, she does. She definitely has the look going for her. She soon found a couple, 94-year-old Montgomery and his wife, 84-year-old Dolly Edwards. Montgomery had lost his legs from complications due to diabetes, and he was also blind. In November 1975, Dolly wanted to bring her husband home from the hospital, and they knew they needed care because he was bedridden. Dolly was a cancer survivor and wouldn't be able to care for him by herself, so the county nurse recommended Velma Barfield. Velma got the room and board she needed, as well as $75 a week from the Edwards. While taking care of them, Velma began to see the same type of characteristics of her mother and Dolly. Dolly would tell her what to do, and she was never satisfied with how Velma did things. 
Ronnie overheard a handful of their arguments and even admitted that they sounded exactly like the arguments between Velma and Lily before she died. Some of their arguments were over how Dolly talked about her nephew, Roland Stewart Taylor, who went by Stewart. Velma had met him a few times and thought he was nice, but Dolly only talked poorly about him. She often complained about his drinking problem, and as it turned out, Velma always argued with Dolly because she had a romantic interest in Stuart and wanted to defend him. Stuart eventually asked Velma out on a few dates, but then he stopped coming by the house entirely. When Velma mentioned it to Dolly, she told her that Stuart had gotten back with his wife after being separated and returned home with his children. On January 29, 1977, doctors claimed that Montgomery passed away from natural causes, so it was just Velma and Dolly left in the house, just like it was with her mother. Velma later admitted that every time Dolly complained, she had the urge to scream at her and even physically harm her. So that's what she ended up doing. Just like the others, Velma poisoned Dolly. Dolly was in excruciating pain for almost 24 hours and the usual symptoms kicked in. Lots of vomiting and diarrhea. Velma had watched the entire thing unfold, all the while feeling nothing. And Dolly died the following morning, March 1st, 1977. Since Dolly was elderly, no one became suspicious. Velma again was a church-going woman who knew how to blend in. With both of the Edwards dead, Velma moved on to her next victims and found more people looking for live-in care. They were 80-year-old John Henry Lee and his wife, 76-year-old Record Lee. Record had just broken her leg and John couldn't take care of her, so in came Velma. She moved in with them in late April 1977 and she immediately found them annoying. She said they argued quite a bit. After a few months of working for them, Velma ended up hating them just like the others. And she fantasized about quitting, but she needed the money. To continue her drug addiction, she stole John's checkbook to pay for her prescription medication. Record and John eventually got their bank statement and noticed the activity. Someone had been writing unauthorized checks for $100 to $200 at a time. So they're like, what's going on here? And called the police. But they couldn't find a name other than John's connected to the checks. The only suspect they could think of was a good Christian woman, Velma Barfield, who was living with the couple. But they couldn't imagine her doing something like that. So the investigation ended. Wow. Isn't that Great investigating. Yeah. Like, well, she's a good church-going woman. She doesn't look like she'd do it. Yeah, that's so, it. Must have been John. He's old, doesn't remember him right, writing the yeah. check. So it's probably just not worth her time. That's probably the conversations they had. But it's wild. It's like, hey, we only have one suspect here. But no way could it be her. Let's forget about and this it. This happens a lot with these poisoning cases, it feels like. Yeah. You know, like, oh, there's no way that person would do anything yep. harmful to them. She's getting paid to take care of them. How could she? Right. But seeing how the police were now getting involved, Velma thought it was time to buy more arsenic. Just like she did with the Edwards and all of her other previous victims, Velma told herself that all she wanted to do was make her victims sick. It's just like, she's like trying to downplay this. She's like, I'm just going to make them sick. And then it's the sickness that's going to kill them. Not me. Yeah. I know. She's like so manipulating demented. herself, yeah. right? She's like building this narrative. I'll just to make trick- him sick. And then the sickness will just like spiral out of control. Yeah. She's just lying to herself here. And she, she'll stick with this lie forever. Right. She she'll convinced herself like, hey, that she, I never wanted to kill anyone. Yep. I just, never, just want to make them sick to the point where they don't know what's going on. Can't do anything. It's just like, it's a bunch of, bunch of bullshit. Yep. She also claimed that she did this in order to, create enough time for them to be distracted 
from her forging their checks, which is just like, okay. I mean, I like, I believe that she did poison them over the checks, but I don't think she did it without realizing that they would die. No, she already knew. She's already done yeah, this before. She knows what's going to happen. Right. Like, don't, it's just hard to think that she's like, oh, you know, I don't know anything about arsenic. I never knew how dangerous that was. Like, I'm sure even back then, there was a label on the bottles as like fatal if with, ingested. Right. With know. like skull and crossbones yeah, on it. Yeah. The classic poison icon, you right. know. So shortly after, Velma poisoned John's tea and coffee multiple times, three in fact, on April 29th, 1977. And again, the symptoms were the same as her other victims. Up until then, he had been in good health and he was even doing chores around the house. But soon she was taking them to the hospital as the poison kicked in. Doctors thought that, again, he just had the stomach flu and luckily he ended up getting better and he was actually released from the hospital on May 2nd, 1977. But throughout the rest of the month, he kept getting sick. Because Velma, surprise, just kept on poisoning him. But she wasn't giving him lethal doses. Because I think she's like, oh, I'm just going to draw this out so it doesn't look suspicious. And after a month of on and off again pain, vomiting, and diarrhea, John went back to the hospital. And by this point, it was too late. The doctor said he was critically ill. He had started to turn blue even, and his skin was cold and wet he was also acting confused and unresponsive and sadly the next day on june 4th 1977 john passed away and no autopsy was performed before his burial a few days after john's death Stuart taylor came to visit and he said he was divorcing his wife and was just quote-unquote checking in on velma they spent a few hours catching up and after his visit they started up their romantic relationship again meanwhile velma continued to take care of record after a few more months, Velma quit her job and became a nurse's aide at a nearby nursing home, which is like, God, only they knew who they were hiring. Him. Yep. And she's just on to the next one. She's like, oh, that's the ultimate place to go. You know, plenty of victims there to take advantage of. Velma worked the third shift and made more money than she had ever before. So she was able to move into a trailer home finally. By now, I'm just disgusted because... It's not only has she killed multiple people now and she's manipulative, but it's also like she doesn't feel anything when they die. Also, I'm going to kill this man, start dating his nephew, and also continue to take care of his wife for a little bit after that before quitting. But then just like pretend that everything's fine. It's like you had, you have nothing on your conscience and that terrifies me. And I think this was even more about getting people out of her way you know i think it was about money and about getting the drugs she wanted but i think it was also anybody that she just didn't like or felt like was you know prohibiting her from being happy with the people she wanted to be with she's just like oh I'll just take them out yeah this woman killed her own mother so right. can't put anything past her this yeah time. so as she kept dating Stuart, she noticed something about him that bothered her she would see him for only a few days at a time and then he'd disappear for a week. Turns out he still had a drinking problem and during these weeks he would often go on benders. But Velma kept dating him anyway. They would go out on weekend vacations and despite his drinking problem, Stuart, I guess, made Velma happy. By the fall of 1977, they became engaged. Now, Ronnie and Kim thought this was a terrible idea. 
Their mother had already been married to an alcoholic before, Thomas, which was their father, and it ended terribly, right? But Vilma tried to convince them that, hey, look, this time was different. Stuart was working on getting sober, plus Stuart's divorce wouldn't be finalized until the following May, so look, there was still time to get his act together. She also knew how to manipulate Stuart, and one example was that Stuart never went to church, but his friends started noticing that ever since he started dating Velma, he was just this hardcore Christian. She would get him to go to church two to three times a week. And here's an even stranger example of Velma's manipulation. So in November of 1977, police showed up at Velma's trailer after a friend found her with her wrists and ankles duct taped in her bedroom. She also had tape across her mouth. So according to Velma, she had gotten up that morning and headed to the bathroom to shower. She said that a strange man had broken into her trailer. He threw a towel over her head, duct taped her, and secured her to the bedposts. But when police showed up, they looked around. There's no sign of forced entry. Velma hadn't been assaulted besides being tied to the bed. And there were also no signs of a robbery. So obviously this was all staged by Velma, especially to get Stewart's attention. And soon enough, he comes running. He races over to the trailer to check on her. He said it was too dangerous for her to live alone. So look, Velma, come, come move in with me over in Lumberton. So now she's got a place wow. to stay. She doesn't have to, you know, use her money towards her trailer any longer. She gets to move in with him. And of course, I mean, he has his own money. He's got his own checkbooks and she knows this. So their relationship only got worse from there. Velma used his checkbooks to fill her prescriptions like always, and Stuart noticed the bank statements by December, which is like, of course he did. I think she's getting bolder here. Stuart's not elderly. He's with it. He checks his bank statements, right? But she's still bold enough to steal from him. So by December, he threatens to go to the police if it happens again. At 45 years old, Velma tried to escape Stuart. He says, oh, he's oppressing me by moving in with her son, Ronnie. But Ronnie was living with his wife and child at the time, and they didn't want her around because, obviously, her drug addiction, her erratic behavior. And she was extremely heartbroken and enraged over this. By January 1978, Velma was back living with Stuart. She quit her job and was briefly hospitalized for her drug abuse problems. She had no money, and she began stealing more checks from Stuart, thinking that maybe his earlier threat of going to the police was just an empty threat. And then he threatens to go to the police again. So Velma, what does she do? She decides to get rid of him the same way she got rid of everyone else. She mixed arsenic into Stuart's beer, cereal, and tea. He became ill while they were at a church service in Fayetteville. God, that's just so callous right i just am like picturing my head her sitting down for breakfast with stewart she just you know made two bowls of cereal she obviously knows which bowl has the arsenic in it she's sitting down eating her cereal across from stewart while he's sitting there eating arsenic at breakfast and then we're gonna casually go to church and that was probably strategic yeah knowing that the symptoms were gonna kick in in public right so she now has all these witnesses being like oh yeah he fell violently ill in front of us right no one was seeing velma do anything to him right there right so it's just like oh he's sick and she's like oh my husband uh, you know and she yep. just this 
endearing wife that's you know worried about her husband's illness and everybody gets to see her kind of in this positive light exactly so yeah very manipulative have you ever wondered what it's like to experience true horror in its most visceral form we often hear stories about serial killers kidnappers and potential predators on the news we read about the unspeakable crimes they've committed secondhand but what about the victims what about those fortunate few that made it out alive to tell their tale look no further than let's not meet it's a true horror anthology podcast narrated by host andy tate that chronicles the first person encounters of those that survived a brush with the most dangerous monsters of all join andy every sunday night to hear listener submitted stories like the fingers under the door the hotel basement and the laughing in the woods true tales guarantee to keep you in suspense you can catch Let's Not Meet a True Horror podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast today. So when they got to the hospital, just like you were saying, Velma acted like she had been trying to nurse Stuart back to health. She said she thought it was maybe something he had eaten earlier in the day, which is crazy. Because that's she's being honest there. She's like, oh, maybe he ate something. Yeah. The arsenic that what, you the gave moldy him. cereal you gave him? <laughs> yeah, like, right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And and just like a lot of the others, they diagnosed him with gastroenteritis, which as I said earlier, that's just a uh, one of the most common symptoms of arsenic toxicity. But they didn't know this was the cause at the time. They ended up just giving Stuart some medication and they ended up sending him home where Velma continued to poison him. So clearly nobody's connecting the dots. The nope. hospital, the doctors police nobody's even remotely aware of what's actually going on at this point nope on february 3rd 1978 velma rushed him back to the hospital and stewart ended up dying within an hour at the funeral velma was invited to ride in the family car to the burial plot up until now she had attended every one of her victims funerals she knew exactly how to keep the victims families closed so she wouldn't attract attention and again she was seen crying at the funeral to blend in. I just, I have to wonder if anybody, like I wonder if her kids are even like, this is really fucking bizarre. Yeah, which we'll see. I, it's th- because now if you think about it, uh, Stuart, so all of her other victims up until now, pretty elderly or they had health complications. Stuart, perfectly healthy. Gets the stomach flu and then that. Dunzo? Yeah. So here's where here, here's where finally we'll start to see. Yeah, Stuart's 56 at the time of his death, and mm-hmm. he was a heavy drinker. But again, a lot of people were drinking alcohol at this point in time, and he also had no other major health concerns. The doctors and Stuart's family were shocked and even confused over his death. Plus, Stuart's aunt and uncle Dolly and Montgomery had just died the same way the year before. So the family made a very wise choice and agreed to have an autopsy done. Not long after, a phone call came into the local police department claiming that there were several murders disguised as natural deaths. Which at first, police thought that this was just a prank call, but the caller mentioned the victims by name, including Stuart and Velma's mother, Lily. And supposedly the caller was one of Velma's sisters, which, thank God. Right. You know. And I'm glad it was someone in the family, someone close, because it's like, 
you someone has to connect the dots at some point that it's like huh strange over these last few years people who interact with my sister are constantly dying the same way so it was bound to happen and good on her sister for calling that in and i i would have to imagine that police took that tip more seriously because it was coming from Velma's sister versus right. like if it's just an anonymous caller or somebody completely unrelated, you know, somebody just from the church or something, which even then that would have been good. But I right. think it really got police's attention because it was Velma's own sisters like, hey, guys, like something's up here. Something's yeah. very weird about all these deaths. So this forced the police to take a much deeper look into what was actually going on with these other victims. And the case gained immediate priority. At first, no one believed that Velma Barfield, who had a good reputation, you know, good church-going woman, took care of the elderly, could have ever done something like this. After a few delays and a lengthy examination process, lab technicians noticed some abnormalities during Stewart's autopsy, but no one could identify what was actually wrong with Stewart. It wasn't until North Carolina's chief medical examiner, Richard Hudson Jr., got a hold of the results and realized it had to have been acute arsenic poisoning. A few more tests were needed in order to confirm this. On March 10th, a little over a month after Stewart passed away, Velma was visited by Detective Benson Phillips from the Lumberton Police Department, and he brought her in for questioning. Many of the people in her life had symptoms of gastroenteritis when they died, and this was the first time police seriously considered her as a suspect. When they got her back to the interrogation room, I can only imagine how Velma acted. Shocked. Like, what? Why am I here? Yeah, no way. She even started crying and told the officer she didn't kill anyone. But on March 16th, the final results of Stewart's autopsy came in, confirming he had died from arsenic poisoning. When detectives brought this information to Stewart's family, his daughter Alice told them about Velma's forged checks, which gave her a motive. And at that point, Detective Benson then arrested Velma. And when he told her that they were exhuming the bodies of her previous victims, that's when Velma realized, I've been caught. And she immediately confessed to killing her mother, Lily, and her elderly employers, Dolly and John. But she said it was an accident. She only wanted to make them sick, which nobody's buying that excuse. And it's like, yeah, you did make them sick and they died. Like, I don't. It's weird she just tries to convince herself and everybody else that this was just like... I think it's her way of like not accepting that she's a killer, right? Yeah. And in her mind, you know, in her, you know, she's probably got this demented view of her faith and she's like, I can't be a killer because killers, you know... Go to hell. Killers go to hell. Right. So I just made them sick, which is not as bad. It's just... Some serious uh, (laughs) cognitive dissonance here. And again, like imagine this woman's mental state on you know on prescription pills every day i mean true she's probably in suffering from severe disillusion yeah that's a great point yeah that's a good note to make here is that you know for the last several years all of these murders she had been addicted to pills the autopsy of the exhumed body of her late husband jennings would also later show traces of arsenic but she denied killing him the bodies of john dolly and her mother lily also showed traces of arsenic despite the confessions and traces of arsenic she was only indicted on one count of first degree murder for stuart taylor his case had the most compelling evidence and they only needed one murder conviction to put her on death row in north carolina 
Velma wasn't present for her indictment because she was in the hospital for an extended psychological examination. A psychiatrist, Dr. Bob Rollins, later determined she was competent to stand trial, which I think that's a very important point in this case. Because on May 5th, 1978, Velma did try to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, which doesn't surprise me at all that she went that route. And her trial began on November 27th, 1978. The prosecutor, Joe Freeman Britt Jr., was confident he had an open and shut case. He even skipped his opening statements and went straight to his first witness. I love that. Yeah. He's so badass. He's just he's like, screw the politics. We're just yeah, going I don't need to convince in. you of anything here. Let me just show you the evidence and, you know, bring this witness forward. And it's all you need. Each witness brought onto the stand testified a piece of the story of Velma either forging checks, abusing drugs, or killing Stewart. Those who testified for the defense explained that Velma grew up in a toxic household and later developed mental illness and drug addiction, which is true, but that doesn't mean you go and kill people. Right. So do a lot of people. A lot of people. Right. And a lot of people don't end up being a murderer. Right. right. The defense argued that the drugs caused her to fall into a, quote, psychotic manic state, and she wasn't in control during the murder. When Velma later took the stand and claimed she only wanted to make her victims sick, not kill them, she said she just needed for them to be sick long enough to cover up the thefts and so that she could pay the money back. Like, come on, who's buying that? Like, she's just taking out loans? Then why not just go ask them for a loan? Right. And I I think what they're trying to do here is like, oh, look, it's not first degree. This is, these were accidental, right? right? She was, yes, she was doing something malicious, but no, this wasn't the intended outcome. It's like, give me a break. There's premeditation written all over this. Yes. And she had several other victims, which I know was a little bit of a a contentious part of the trial because they did try and bring in uh, family members from other victims. But then the defense kept shutting it down, saying like, look, this is only the trial for Stewart. Right. So don't bring in any of the other victims cases because this is about Stuart. But it's like even the prosecution was like, look, this plays into all this. She has killed countless other people. So you're trying to build this narrative of an accidental death. It's just which maybe would have worked with her first victim. Right. If that was what she's being tried for. Agreed. But by this point, you're being tried for the murder of Stuart. And it is very clear that this is premeditated first degree murder. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete shot in the dark for her defense. I mean, I'm sure they're like, I don't know how to defend this person. Like, yeah, it's just either you're insane, you know, and you're out of your mind, basically. And that's why you you did this. Or, you know, what else is there? Yeah. Other than, oh, you didn't know about arsenic. It's an accident. Come on. Yeah. And get this. This is wild. As the prosecution gave their closing statements, Velma began clapping sarcastically. Imagine that. It only get worse. Yeah. But Joe Britt was right the whole time. He did have an open and shut case because Velma's trial ended after only one week and the jury only deliberated for an hour. Wow. They're like, yeah, come on, guys. This is pretty obvious here. They found Velma guilty of first degree murder. And during the penalty phase, they deliberated for three more hours and they voted in favor of Velma being executed for her crime. Joe Britt later said, quote, if there's ever been a case deserving imposition of the ultimate penalty, this is it. During the sentencing, Velma showed no emotion. She sat there in silence, chewing gum. 
Sitting a few rows behind her, her daughter Kim burst into tears. Velma officially became the second woman on North Carolina's death row since capital punishment was reinstated the year before, and she soon became known as, quote, death row granny. She claimed she wouldn't appeal, and she was, quote, ready to meet God. She said, quote, I know people are saying, oh, poor old Velma sitting up there on death row, but I wish they wouldn't because I know when the final breath comes, it will just be goodbye here and hello on the other side. I have joy unspeakable. Wow, that, that confidence. Right. I mean, I know in, in the faith, your, your first visit is standing before God to be judged. Yeah. You know, before you're ever led into heaven, right? And that's why I think I like your theory on, on her manipulating herself into believing that all this was an accident because, look, I'm ready to meet God because I've done nothing wrong. I'm going to get in the gates of heaven. It's going to be good. Like she has convinced herself over the years that she's still this Christian woman that's going to heaven. You know, or it's this, the every night, you know, after she poisons one of her victims, she's like, God, please forgive me and my sins, you know, and oh, kind of yeah. that whole God forgive mind state yeah. of like, oh, you know, I can wipe my slate clean after doing each and every one of these sins and I'm yeah. good to go. I think the problem with that is like, she's deluded herself because you have to be genuinely remorseful right when you're asking for forgiveness but doesn't seem like she is here as she waited on death row she actually sobered up for the first time in years and she soon became a born-again christian even though she had always gone to church she now admitted that she was just playing the part of a good christian but now she claimed she was truly changed i don't has she ever read the story of the boy who cried wolf I'm not sure because it's like you've lied to us your entire life and all of a sudden now you expect us to believe that now you're a born again Christian. Okay. Yeah. Now that you can't keep doing these things, you know, and you're locked up in a cage. Yep. Now you're a good person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just so convenient. You know, she also began counseling the other women while in prison and they began to look at her as a type of mentor, and some of the women saw her as this kind of grandmother figure. If you look at these pictures of her yeah. in prison, it's like... It's I, like a I, little grand, like grandmother's desk or something. There's yeah. a picture of Jesus hanging there. She got the short hair and like kind of the big glasses. She looks like a grandma, and I, you, you kind of get why people didn't connect the dots, because she genuinely does give off this aura of this innocent grandma-like person, but... But come on, nobody's buying it. Like, yeah, just look yeah. at a bottle of arsenic from like the 80s and it literally in big letter says poison. <laughs> yeah, seriously. it's like, come on. Yeah. Like, nobody believes you didn't know that you were poisoning them. Yeah. Like, come on, you know, it's got a skull on there for a reason. Yeah, right? it's like you know. if you ingest this, you will become. I'm, I'm totally convinced she knew that she was going to kill yeah. the victims. There's no doubt in my mind. Even though Velma previously said she wouldn't appeal and was ready for death and ready to meet God, she ended up... Wasn't so sure. Yeah. He ended up appealing three times. So no, she, in the end, she wasn't ready Maybe to meet God. Maybe she started reading the good book and was like, oh, I'm going to have a lot harder time here than right. I expected. One of her appeals focused on the testimony of Dorothy Lewis. Dorothy was a professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine. 
and she was an expert on violent behavior, and she had also been involved in a high-profile case, which was the Ted Bundy's trial, so she had been around the block. When she testified during this trial, Dorothy had claimed that Velma suffered from a dissociative identity disorder, and Velma actually had a second personality known as Billy. Apparently, Billy had actually convinced Velma that she had been sexually abused, and so Billy killed the abusers out of revenge, which is a wild theory. The idea was that Billy was in control of Velma during these murders and not Velma. And I love this. The judge rejected the appeal, saying, quote, one of them did it. I don't care which one. Right. Which I think really sums it up. It's like, okay, you got a dissociative disorder. It's like someone someone in there is committing these murders. So either way, we don't really care. In response to the rejected appeal, Velma said, quote, I know everybody has gone through a lot of pain, all the families connected, and I am sorry, and I want to thank everybody who has been supporting me all these six years. Yeah, like I said at the very beginning of this episode, she was getting a lot of support uh, from the religious community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, Billy Graham, who's like one of the most famous preachers of all time, uh, him and his wife uh, were exchanging letters with her in prison. And, you know, it. I think a lot of people really felt like she, you know, had finally repented her sins and she had really changed at this point and that the death penalty was a was a harsh punishment for what she had done and i think it was you know she was garnering support and she was hoping that ultimately you know she get a stay of execution or ultimately get her her sentence uh changed yeah to life in prison as opposed to to death which she wasn't that far off no. i mean she was some people really did fear that uh she was going to be exonerated so that was on the table. Velma filed her final appeal on October 30th, 1984 on the grounds that she had been incompetent at her original trial because of drug use. This was later rejected. There were fears that the governor might grant Velma clemency. Ronnie and Kim both defended their mother, but Stewart's daughter Alice later said, quote, She's an outstanding liar. She does not want help. Velma Barfield enjoys killing. Through the years, many became convinced that Velma's sentence might be commuted. Her lawyers constantly tried to get her a stay of execution, and her execution had been rescheduled multiple times, but she eventually asked her lawyers to abandon another appeal they were planning. And we actually have uh, a very short clip from 1984 um, of her being interviewed in, in prison uh, right before her execution. So let's go ahead and take a look at Velma here. Velma Barfield was convicted and sentenced to die in 1978 for the poisoning death of her boyfriend. She also admitted poisoning three other people, including her mother. Barfield had been awaiting her sentence in the women's correctional facility in Raleigh. But last week, for security reasons, say corrections officials, she was moved to Raleigh's central prison, where she is the only woman prisoner. She now waits in virtual isolation in a cell just across from the execution chamber. A constant reminder, she says, of her likely fate. It's total, you know, isolation from everybody that I had been with for almost six years. The first week I was here was the worst week that I have spent everything Barfield about. says drugs led her to prison. She became addicted to tranquilizers, she says, during a rocky period in her life. The last 10 years was just like that. Uh, years of a drug nightmare. Days of not knowing where you are or what you've done. 
Her attorney would not allow her to say whether she knew what she was doing when she committed her crimes. But once confined in prison, Barfield says, she found God. It's her relationship with God, she says, that has enabled her to survive her confinement. Living in prison every day is a struggle, even at its best. And um, I know that without him and the, his strength that has sustained me, I couldn't have made it even thus far. Now, drug-free, a repentant Barfield says she regrets the pain she has caused others. I'm sorry for the hurt that I've caused so many people. Um, today, if it were possible, I wish that I could take every bit of hurt on myself. Mm. I think it's an act. Ah, uh, I don't know. Do you think she's genuine? Impossible to say for sure. Yeah. Um, it's hard because when you look at her and you hear her speak, you want to feel. I know. You want to feel like, no. oh, you know what? Maybe she finally, you know, now that she's sober, realizes the extent of what she's done. And I think that's what she plays into. She knows she has the look. She has the voice. Mm -hmm. She plays into the religious appeal mm -hmm. like i think she's just so calculated that she knows how to do it because if i were to come across a woman like this at the grocery store or something i'd be like oh that was a very pleasant woman there's yeah. no way she could, i've gotten you know. stuff off the top shelves for women like this yeah exactly you know? it's exactly. like hey son can you grab that off <laughs> yeah. the top shelf for yeah. me? like sure she seems like everyone's grandma yeah and i think that that is what's hard in this case to get over that and and start seeing pull back the layers of that and start actually seeing the person who's behind this right. facade of just the nice grandma but that's my that's yeah. my thought on it if i had to play devil's advocate i would say when you you know when you're addicted you know you're you're struggling with addiction and depending on we don't know exactly which which drug she was necessarily addicted to over a long period At of her life moment yeah. tranquil if you know tranquilizers and you know she's mixing different things i mean the the headspace that she was in could have absolutely changed the way that she she was perceiving reality i mean her consciousness is altered so i do think there that there is a real i guess possibility that maybe a lot of these things did happen because of this altered state of consciousness that she was in i do think based on the other decisions that she made and being so planned and almost methodical about it i think that's where it becomes hard for me to just believe her story of like it was the drugs you know i was in this drug-induced haze for years and years and years and that's why i did what i did i think she wouldn't have been able to carry this on as long as she did if that were truly the case you know like it's like i feel like there would have been a slip up or you know what i mean some some somewhere along the way maybe things had wouldn't have worked out so perfectly i guess in her in her favor yeah. it's hard to just say oh man it was all because of the drugs the drugs kind of made you do this um, no, but I, I appreciate that because 
like you do have to remember also she grew up in an unstable household yeah. like there there are a lot of things to unpack in this case i think though with the drug abuse I think the seed of Velma's manipulation was already planted long yes. before her drug abuse yeah. came into play. But I could see how the drug abuse would exacerbate whatever was going on with her already. Right. And distorted her reality or or whatever, maybe just gave her the confidence to start killing these people. But I think Velma Barfield as a killer probably manifested before the drug abuse. Right. I think the the term cycle of abuse is very yeah rings true in this case because i mean you look at what she went through as a child the way that her father treated her you know she was sexually abused physically mentally emotionally abused right and then you know those traits are then passed down to her and she starts exhibiting the exact same behaviors as her father so i think i think that plays a big part in how everything unfolds in her life and then the drugs just kind of accelerate that right? right and maybe also you know she's obviously not thinking clearly right she's not she doesn't have a sober mind so you have to take that into account but i do think the serial killing leads me to believe that there is there was sober moments throughout her life where she knew what she was doing and she continued doing it maybe perhaps because she was addicted to drugs and needed to continue to get money for drugs but I think it was also, it's also very evident that it was because she clearly learns that like, if I don't like somebody or I don't need them anymore, then I'll get rid of them. And then also she, she's taking advantage of the life insurance policies too. So she's, she's, I think there's, there's enough decisions being made there to make me believe that she full well knew what she was doing yeah. at the end of the day. And I think once she finally got sober in prison, those last six years, she realized like, Oh wow, this was way worse than I ever, ever really knew it yeah. was at the time. Cause I mean, even she said in to a prison warden quote, I don't want to die, but I understand that I'm guilty. So it's like, once she finally got her, her mind sober, she was like, Oh, you know, I'm definitely guilty yeah. of the crimes that I've and maybe, you know, in those final final years she, you know, got right with God and, you know, all of that perhaps, but only after she faced the consequences right. of her actions cuz I fear that if she was never caught, she would have just gone yeah, through the Yeah, it's like the class of sayings of like you're only sorry because you got caught, right? right? If you hadn't gotten caught, would you have kept doing it? Yeah. And to me it seems like she would have. Her last meal was reportedly cheese doodles, which I had to look that up because I've never heard of that before. And it looks like it was Cheetos, uh, kind of like cheese puffs right. type yep. of deal. Exactly. Before Cheetos came along. And Coca-Cola. She was allowed to even choose what clothing to wear during her execution. And she chose pink pajamas. After six years on death row, the day came. November 2nd, 1984 at 2.15 a.m., they executed 52-year-old Margie Velma Barfield by lethal injection at North Carolina's Central Prison. This made her the first woman executed in the United States after it was reinstated after a four-year suspension. She was also the first woman to be executed in the U.S. since 1962. That's 22 years earlier. Plus, she was the first woman to be executed by lethal injection, period. She was buried two days later beside her late husband, Thomas Burke, at the request of her son, Ronnie, 
Some sources say that right before Velma was executed, she confessed to Ronnie that she had started the fire that had killed Thomas all those years ago. She was only convicted of one murder and confessed to three more, but it's believed she might have killed between five to seven people. And, you know, some of those people we talked about earlier on, I think you kind of start to wonder, like, did she have a hand in those other people's deaths? All the natural causes, deaths of the elderly. Yeah. About 200 people attended her funeral, and afterward, Ronnie told reporters, quote, Velma said she wanted to be known as a good Christian and nothing else. He hoped that her good behavior in prison would balance out the terrible murders she committed. But many, many people out there still believe she was a cunning, cold-blooded killer who continued to hide behind the disguise of a sweet little old Christian lady. So, that's where we leave it. Is she a cold-blooded killer or a good Christian woman that just got hooked on drugs and decided to start poisoning people? I think my needle leans towards cold-blooded killer. Um, Even though, I don't know, I try to see the good in people and give them the benefit of the doubt as much as I can. But in this case, I think think she was calculated. Uh, I think she was manipulative. Obviously, there were a lot of factors in her life to get her to that point. Um, obviously being, you know, we listed them all destructive household, drug abuse, mental illness, the hysterectomy also played a factor into it. Um, also being married to an alcoholic must be rough. I I mean, there's a, there's a lot, it's, it's kind of a sad, tragic story all in all, but I do think she was just at the end of the day was a cold blooded murder because I think people face those life circumstances all the time. I think people are raised in destructive households. I think yeah. people suffer from drug addiction. I, you know, people go through a lot and they don't do things like this. So that's what makes me think she was bound to be a killer because, and she thought she could get away with it for as long as possible. I would maybe think otherwise had she eventually just came clean on her own. You think or so? like turned herself in or like had this, you know, kind of revelation of like, I've done terrible things, but it took her own family ratting her out for her to stop this cycle yeah. of, of death that she was dishing out. So I agree with you. I think she's calculated cold blooded killer. I think, you know, the death penalty for, for this, I think is, uh, was an interesting, interesting choice in comparison to other killers who have done, you know, not that, I think the way that she killed people as opposed to other killers who have done heinous, heinous things. Yeah. It's, and hard, it's get, hard to weigh that. Get life know, in prison, you know. Scale, yeah. No, so was there saying. a benefit to executing her? I think ultimately, you know, I have said this before, but I have to go with the, the victims here. And, you know, obviously Vilma's own, you know, son and daughter don't don't want to see her executed, but I have to go with, with Alice, you know, and some of the other victims. And I'm sure they were like, she deserved this. Yeah. And I mean, you know me, I'm just fundamentally against, uh, the death sentence, but, um, you know, either way that for me, this probably would have been, if not death sentence, I would hope that it would be a life sentence, uh, with like no chance of parole here. Cause I just think she's a, a dangerous woman. Yeah. And, you know, if she did, if she genuinely did find God and turned her life around and she was a good mental, 
she was a, and if she was a good mentor in prison, then yeah, she, I mean, she clearly didn't like prison life. She vocalized that right. in that interview, but maybe she could have found some little corner of prison where she could have, I don't know. She could have been an asset to the prison. Yeah. You know, so helping other prisoners kind of reform and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know her relationship with her children, it was a powerful and they really truly did love her. So, you know, they could have at least kept a relationship going there, but from the victim's point of view, yeah, I, it's that's a tough call. She hurt countless people in these. I mean, these these poor people died horrific, violent deaths. Yeah, you know, poisoning or not, it's still a horrible way to go. And I can't even imagine the what that would be like to to die in this way. I mean, right. and not know why it's happening, and you know, everybody's just telling you you're sick, but you know something else is is going on something very wrong and the just like the tragedy of hiring someone the the guilt because probably the family members might have had a hand in like oh yeah here's the nurse that's right. taking care of my elderly right. parents or something and probably the guilt that would come along with that after knowing that she was the one killing them the person who was supposed to be taking care of them right yeah what do you what do you think daniel where, where do you find yourself with this one think she's a cold-blooded killer or was you know, kind of the circumstances of her life kind of forced I, her into this. I think that if she wasn't struggling with a drug addiction or it seems to be decades, that she probably wouldn't have ended up killing at all, in my opinion. I, I definitely think that she is a, a calculated, manipulative person. I think that just kind of, and I don't want to say runs in her family, but like we were talking about the cycle of abuse. But I think the uh, the drug dependency numbed her enough to the point where she she knew what she was doing. But when you're in the when you're in the deep part of an addiction, you know what you're doing, but you don't understand gravity of the consequences. You are, in a sense, in a different reality. So I I think she was fully aware of what she was doing, and she obviously committed the crime, so she deserves the punishment for it. But I don't think that if she was so deep into this addiction that she would have committed these murders. I still think she would have been abusive, manipulative, and all these other horrible things, but I don't think she would have murdered. That's that's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, I've been called a narc before, but you know what I'll say? Just be wary of drug use out there. I mean, I know we all like to have fun and and we do, we do you know we like to party we like to hang out that's that's completely fine but i know i've been my I've, partying days are over man. <laughs> yeah you got a kid now but i just be wary of it man you never know it's, and even with prescription drugs yeah I think well everyone that's some of the most dangerous stuff is prescribed from a doctor right exactly and like the opioid epidemic and everything so i don't know call me a narc in the comments i don't care uh if if that's daniel's take on it that's terrifying that drug abuse can yeah. lead you down i kind of like i this. kind of agree agree a lot with what you're saying because i do see how again I, I think it'd be interesting to know the magnitude at how much was she taking you yeah, know what i mean yeah. and which drugs was she taking on any given day good right? call yeah. and really understand that on a deeper level because if it is as bad as it seems it was i can definitely see how your mind you could convince yourself that like oh, I'm just putting a little bit of poison in here and they're getting sick and not fully grasping the full extent of what of what you're doing and 
you know, and maybe she could have been in a drug induced haze when she was dosing out the dosing out the arsenic. Right. And she, who knows how, what that looked like. So Um, not that that's excusing any of it because, you know, just because you're on drugs doesn't mean you go that route. Right. I was going to say, you don't go to like, Oh, I'm going to poison people and just be like, Oh, I'm just making them sick. You know? And I'm not, I'm not blaming the drugs solely. I'm more saying that she had all of like the, the personality of a perfect storm. Right. The drugs are what kind of, pushed it over the edge in yeah. that sense yeah. well the disassociative personality disorder i think was a spot-on uh diagnosis for her because i mean you look at you know kind of some of the symptoms for that and and trauma first and foremost and there's definitely trauma there yeah in her childhood and and you know really throughout her life but then you know drugs is, is another big aspect to it that can make that far worse so i think it's just kind of the the culmination of all these things just kind of put her in this prime position to you know take things to the next level she experimented with this and then and then saw that it worked in her favor and and ultimately too when you're addicted you're just trying you want to get your next you know you're just looking for your next dose you're just looking for your next prescription and so that overrides everything else right no i i agree with that i think that is a really good way to sum it up it's velma barfield the perfect storm it really is like the culmination of everything in her life really led to these murders i think that's really the best way you can sum it up but at the end of the day it doesn't excuse what she did right it doesn't bring these people back so you know i i this is this might be old fashioned, but like I stand by, you know, you you know you do the crime, you you do the time, right? For sure. And ultimately, she did the crime. I think sentencing, you know, I think there's definitely some other alternatives there potentially. But if this is what the victims pushed for, then you know, I'd be I'd be on their side with it. But yeah, this one's. Ooh. It's nothing, tough, it's not, a tough one. Yeah, sure. nothing fun in this one for sure. But we want to know your thoughts on this. Where do you where do you stand? Do you you know what do you feel would be fair punishment for her if not the death penalty? Do you feel that she's a cold blooded killer that she premeditated every single one of these murders, or you know was this a culmination of things, a perfect storm, so to speak? We want to know your thoughts. But that is going to be it for us this week. We'll see you guys next week and until then lights out everybody